Carter's theorizing is a vulgarization of Marxism. Because we live in a bourgeois world and are bound by a thousand threads to bourgeois concepts, language which is within the confines of capitalist understanding is easy for the simple-minded to grasp. That is why his pseudo-Marxism always seems to make sense. That is a quote from a 1944 paper by Raya Dunyevskaya, a paper which is the topic of our main segment today. You are listening to Radio Free Humanity, the Marxist humanist podcast. My name is Brandon Cooney. In this week's episode, we discuss some aspects of the debate over the thesis that the USSR was a state capitalist society. To hear more episodes of Radio Free Humanity, to read more about the issues discussed, or to join in the conversation, please do visit MarxistHumanistInitiative.org. You can also make a donation to the podcast there on the website. While our podcast is hosted by MHI, the views expressed by the co-hosts and guests of Radio Free Humanity are their own. They do not necessarily reflect the views and positions of MHI. In just a moment, we will commence the main segment of our podcast. But first, as we do in every episode, we bring you a discussion of some current events. So what should we talk about today? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Are you being serious like there's so much or, or, or was that a joke? I don't know. Sports, the weather. Yeah, right. Um, okay, yeah. <laughs> Coup attempt. <laughs> so we are recording this current event section on the morning of Thursday, January 7th, less than a day from Trump's attempted coup in the Capitol, and just a few hours from the the Congress finally certifying Joe Biden's election win. Right, with 138 Republican members of the House of Representatives voting not to certify the Pennsylvania results and seven Republican senators. And this was after the the attempted coup and uh, the death of one of the Trumpite deplorables and three other people died in mysterious circumstances. And, you know, it was back to business as usual. Yeah, although something changed in the calculation for some of those Republican senators, because originally there were supposed to be 12 Republican senators who were going to object to the certification of the election, and it ended up only being six or seven of them. I was especially struck by um, Kelly Loeffler, who had just lost her bid for re-election for the Georgia Senate seat earlier that morning. Um, running as a Trump ally, right? And then she spent several hours, whatever, hiding in her closet or under her desk or something as the fascists stormed around in the Capitol. And then she got up and had to sort of eat her own shit in front of the the cameras and say, okay, I support Joe Biden's, uh, the certification of Joe Biden as the, the victor here. Right. I mean, this was not a good day for the mainstream Republicans, which, you know, really she's won. You know, she kind of belatedly hitched her stuff to Trumpism very, very hard. But Mitch McConnell had to preside over the whole thing, having just become the de facto minority leader instead of the head majority turtle, you know. And he he actually said this is the most important vote of his uh, whole career ever, which was to basically to say democracy continues and we'll see whether it does or not. For a lot of these people, they just, you know, they, they don't know what, what, what to do. But there have been so far five new resignations from the Trump administration and the White House, uh, including uh, Mick Mulvaney 
and Trump been thrown off, temporarily thrown off Twitter, and he's had to say that there will be an orderly transfer of power, whatever that means, right? Yeah, but already people are talking about invoking the 25th Amendment or maybe impeaching him. So we'll see what happens in the days to come. Right. Every Democrat on the House Judiciary Committee has come out in favor of invocation of the 25th Amendment. And you've got all kinds of voices saying, get rid of this guy right now from, I don't know, either WAPO or New York Times editorials, call him pal. I mean, there, there is a break going on within the Republican Party. There's a, there's a split taking place. Whether it continues, widens, whether they patch it up, it, it, everything's in flux right now. I'll tell you, it's even in flux as to whether Trump is effectively president or we really have a system of dual power. Because uh, there was a move to call in the National Guard yesterday, and Trump said, no, 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 no. And finally, they asked Pence. He said, yeah, send in the National Guard. So it's unclear what the relationship between Pence and Trump is right now, and it's unclear who's who's in charge, if either, whether there's dual power. This is this has been on a republic time. Yeah, we've talked before on the podcast wondering what it would take for Biden to have like a clear mandate to clean house and take seriously the danger of Trumpism and really do what it takes to to fight Trumpism and. Yesterday, there were two things that could really change that calculation. For one was the the Georgia Senate races and the, the Democrats winning the House. And the two was this like terrorist coup attack on the Capitol, which really dramatized what's at stake in the fight against Trumpism. And I think it'd be much harder for um, those voices of moderation to talk about reaching across the aisle and uniting the country and all that garbage after yesterday. They should reach across the aisle and grab them by the throat and everything else. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the people that have been saying, look, we got to take this shit seriously and really do something about Trumpism, their argument has really been strengthened by this dramatic example of the dangerous. Everyone knows where the blame can be placed for this. Oh, yeah. I mean, I, th I think people know. I mean, if after all of this, you got 138 members of the House, seven members of the, the, the Senate still trying to basically foment continuing insurrection and sedition. If after all of this, they're still doing that, forget it. They're the enemy. And you, you have to fight them till you drive a stake through their heart. That, that's got to be obvious to everybody. And the only thing you can do is to try to compromise, perhaps, with, like, the, the other wing of the Republican Party, the Mitt Romneys and the, the right people like that. But, yeah, the, the cleaning house is of people like the Proud Boys and the, the Boogaloos and so forth. <laughs> But what we saw yesterday, of course, was that was partly an inside job. I mean, it's clear to everybody it was partly an inside job of the Capitol Police. So the cleaning of the House has to go in very deeply into law enforcement, white supremacism in, in, in law enforcement and so forth. And the really, really distressing thing is that Biden wants Merrick Garland to be his attorney general who has a, a pro-police record. I mean, you no, know, he's, he's not Jeff Sessions, but it's not good. You know, on the other hand, there are people who have still, to this day, a very different idea about what needs to be done in this country. And they call themselves on the left. Have you seen Jacobin this morning? No. Oh, good. No, I, somehow it didn't occur to me to look at Jacobin this morning. Oh, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh -oh. David Serrata, this morning... 
The insurrection was predictable. Subhead, uh, yesterday's events were the expression of a dangerous authoritarian movement that has been long in the making. And you go down and you go down and then you get, he says, I've argued the best way to counter the rise of right-wing populism and to prevent it from proliferating is to deliver tangible material gains for working people. <laughs> the New Deal delivering such gains to the working class helped tamp down the outbreak of right-wing fascism in America. The Georgia elections proved this because a black reverend and a Jewish guy relentlessly campaigned on a simple promise to deliver $2,000 checks to millions of Georgians. Okay. And he says, well, of course, no matter what Democrats might deliver, there will always be a right-wing authoritarian movement in America willing to weaponize racism and illiberalism for its cause. Okay. And having like bowed to reality, he says, so it's not simple. There is not a straightforward one-to-one -one relationship between enacting policies that improve people's lives and instantly snuffing out the kind of fascism that reared its head at the Capitol on Wednesday. That was yesterday. But, and now here's the empty promise, delivering for millions of people who've been economically pulverized for generations, say the word, neoliberalism, 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 okay, is the best and probably the only way to try to halt fascism's wider spread over the long haul. Yeah, why? What, what did this have to do with neoliberalism? What did the 138 votes and the seven votes and, and the whole coup attempt and the, the, the white supremacism throughout law enforcement, what the hell does that have to do with the, the neoliberal turn, so to speak? I mean, this is just like we got to tack on our conclusion no matter what. It's like we're not going to learn. Yeah, I mean, these are the same people that four years ago were dismissing people like us who were calling this a fascist phenomena and saying that the Trumpite base was this base that we had to be sympathetic for because it represented these marginalized, you know, white working class voters that were rebelling against neoliberalism and seeing there was this uh, you know, opportunity to organize there or something. And now four years later, you know, they're comfortable using the word fascism to describe the base, but they still... But they still can't think outside of economic populist project hatching. Well, they're trying to have their cake and eat it, too. It's like, well, there's the real hardcore fascists, and there's nothing to be done about them except, like, what are you going to do about them? And, well, there's this mass base that we can maybe pull away from them by offering them $2,000 apiece. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when, when 138 House members and seven members of the Senate vote to take away the, the election in Pennsylvania, what, what we've got is not just a few crazies who, who storm the, the Capitol building. There's a very, very deep, very widespread pro-fascist base in this country, and it has existed for an extremely long time. It existed in the 30s, okay, as, as he actually admits. And, you know, it existed with George Wallace, uh, his campaigns, and has nothing to do with neoliberalism. And the whole problem, uh, I think, is, I think it goes even deeper than this issue of neoliberalism with, with, with the left. It, they, they really can't grapple with the fact that there are people who want fascism, that there's a mass base of people who really do want white supremacy and fascism. For some reason, they can't accept that that is the fact that there are actually enemies and they just need to be fought, you know, and it's not just a few people.
you know, that, that it goes deeply into a very large base. And I, I, th I think it's because it, it's, it, it's the, the liberal mindset is, is, they think they're not liberals, okay, but it's the liberal mindset of thinking everybody is basically on the same side and rational. And, you know, we can, we can just, we're obviously right. And, you know, our way is, is the way, and it's only a question of getting everybody to see this. No, there are people who want fascism. There are people who want white supremacism, and there is millions upon millions upon millions of them. And, and they've got to get this through their heads or we're going to lose. We're going to lose everything. If they don't understand the, the, the imminent danger that we face and why it is so pervasive and growing, it's because it is popular. If they don't understand that, and this is the left, I mean, we, we don't, we don't, we don't stand a chance. Today we're going to talk about a paper written in 1944 by Ryadunovskaya entitled "A Restatement of Some Fundamentals of Marxism Against Carter's Vulgarization." And the reason we chose this paper to talk about is because it's a contribution to this debate that was going on in the early 40s about whether or not to characterize the Soviet Union as a state capitalist society. And in a moment, we'll talk about why we think that's still an important uh, discussion to have. This particular paper is a response or an intervention in an ongoing debate that was going on within different uh, people within the, the Workers' Party in the early 40s and it's particular between Joseph Carter and C.L.R. James. So, but Andrew, maybe you can flesh out for people uh, exactly what the context was of this debate, um, who Joseph Carter was and why he was debating C.L.R. James and why Dunyovskaya uh, jumped into the, the ring. First, Joseph Carter. That was his party name. His real name was Joseph Friedman. He was a founder of U.S. Trotskyism in 1929. So he was in the Socialist Workers' Party with James Cannon, Dunyovskaya, C.L.R. James, uh, all of those people. They broke, all of them, except for Cannon, they broke with Cannon and the Socialist Workers' Party and Trotsky at the time of the Hitler-Stalin Pact, and they formed a new organization called the Workers' Party. Carter was a leading figure, you know, in the party leading theorist of the party. But his career, so to speak, uh, in politics ended shortly thereafter, you know, after World War II. Then he died at, age, I think, approximately age 60 in 1970. And in the Workers' Party, uh, they were all against the idea that the USSR needed to be defended in the war. But why? That when they when they left the, the Socialist Workers' Party, they didn't have a common position. None of them, as far as I can see, agreed with Trotsky's characterization of the USSR as still being a worker's state, although degenerated because it had nationalized property. Trotsky says nationalized property is progressive. That makes this USSR, even under Stalin, you know, no matter how repressive and everything it is, it's still a worker state and it has to be defended. And that is, is lining you up with Hitler at that at that moment. They, they, they didn't agree with that. But what kind of society it actually was, that wasn't worked out. And the views uh, as to what kind of society it was only emerged thereafter rather slowly while the party was, was in existence. And James 
Times and Dunyevskaya uh, independently came to the position in early 1941 that the USSR was a state capitalist society. And right around the same time, you had some indications that one of the other people, James Burnham, a leader of the Workers' Party, quickly left and veered sharply right. He said, well, you know, it's part of this, like, emerging managerial society. And Joseph Carter and, to a large extent, Max Shackman, the, the remaining big names in, in, in the party, said, no, it's not a capitalist society. It's a new kind of class, exploitative society. It's not capitalist. And, you know, we're going to give it the name bureaucratic collectivist. That's the situation you had in a very small organization. You had the majority position was basically that of Carter and Shackman, which was that the USSR was a bureaucratic collectivist society, but there was this minority known as the Johnson Forrest tendency, Johnson being the pen name of C.L.R. James, Freddie Forrest, the pen name of Ryadnevskaya. The Johnson Forrest tendency said, no, it's a state capitalist society. So this debate between Carter on the one hand, Johnson and Forest, James Dunyevskaya, on the other hand, is really part of this debate over the class character of the USSR. So this is a really interesting question, because in, in order to determine the character of the mode of production and the Soviet Union, we really have to be clear about what capitalism actually is to determine, you know, whether uh, the USSR really broke with the capitalist mode of production or not. You know, um, does state ownership uh, constitute a break with the capitalist mode of production? Does eliminating private capitals, uh, is that sufficient? Um, eliminating like the, the profit motive for owners of firms, is that sufficient? Um, so, and, and this isn't just a sort of a academic or a question of like historical interest. It's really essential to any anti-capitalist politics. We're going to be anti-capitalist. We have to know what we're against and what sort of society we envision uh, replacing capitalism with. No, I fully agree with that. I mean, these debates about state capitalism seem to be about Russia, a society that doesn't exist any, anymore, the USSR and so forth. But since it's a debate about whether the USSR was state capitalist, it's not really a debate about what was the growth rate of, of uh, industrial production and what was the growth rate of, of, of food production in the USSR. It's not a debate over those facts. It really is a debate over what is capitalism. You're you're absolutely right. And and that question does not go away with the collapse of the USSR and its satellites. That question remains. And we, you know, we were talking about that uh, in a recent podcast when we were talking about, you know, this whole idea of uh, people talking about another world is possible, alternatives to capitalism. But there was no real discussion of what capitalism is. I mean, it was just like this empty box, this signifier that people put their own kind of intuitive catch as catch can conceptions of what they didn't like. So to, to me, the really crucial question comes when you say, if you're, if you're anti-capitalist and, 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 and you, you want to fight this, it's important to get at what capitalism is. Now, I agree with that, but I think 95% of the people who will be listening either haven't thought about it or would disagree with it. And I know that a lot of prominent people say we don't, we don't have to, to go, go down that road of understanding what, what capitalism is. So why do you think it's the case that you really do need to have a clear conception of what capitalism is if you're anti-capitalist. Well, maybe it's too obvious an answer. The first thing that comes to mind is just that I can't imagine uh, anyone wanting to repeat the 
Soviet or Maoist experience. It'd be really shame if we didn't learn anything historically from those experiences and we built the Leth Project that ended up repeating those sort of uh, historical experiences. Um, and also, you know, the left, the left really needs to present a real alternative to capitalism. And people aren't stupid. People know their history. They're not going to sign on to some project if it is not clearly differentiated substantively from uh, the failures of Stalinism and Maoism? I think they're very good reasons. Okay, but I also know for decades now I've known, because I've encountered it continually, the response that one gets. And the response that one gets is typically, well, if we had a socialist revolution or whatever in the United States, the difference from Russia, and this is the key difference, is that it would be democratic. Okay, so we don't need to understand really what capitalism is. What we need to understand is that we would have democracy. And then people go on and they go, oh, well, you know, the counter-revolution, the white army was attacking Russia and it was backward. And they go into all kinds of reasons maybe why it wasn't democratic or they blame uh, the Stalinists in particular, uh, the bureaucracy. The idea is, okay, we don't want to repeat the, the mistakes, so to speak, of the past, but we don't need to understand what capitalism is and how not to replicate it in what we're doing new, what we need is, quote, democracy, close quote. So how, did you, how would you respond to that? Well, just reducing the whole question to mysteries of democracy or types of organization seems to be just be just ignoring the actual question and replacing it with some other question. It's like sort of an evasive approach for people that like, don't have an answer, don't want to take time to think through an answer. You know, the capitalist mode of production exercises basic constraints that has a basic logic that's outside of the control of individuals or parties or states or other institutions. It is a mode of production with, with, with its own um, laws and incentives and structure that constrains and shapes the actions of individuals and states and parties. So talking about Democracy only takes you so far if you don't have any way of breaking out of the, the, the logic of capital. Yeah, I think that is really a really crucial point. Another way of putting it or summarizing it, because you've made the point, a way of summarizing it is that conception that the key determining element is whether it's democratic or not inverts, 180 degrees inverts Marx's understanding of the relationship between the material basis of the society, the mode of production, and the political superstructure. Marx says the political superstructure, the form of politics, arises on the basis of and corresponds to the particular mode of production, like a capitalist mode of production or the feudalist mode of production or a communist mode of production. They each have a form of politics that rises on that basis and corresponds. And this idea is, oh, well, all we need is democracy, says that the mode of production, the character of the society, socialist or capitalist or whatever, that flows from and corresponds to the, the, the kind of politics that one, one practices. I mean, how is that? How does politics become so all-powerful? We know from uh, just daily experience how much economics influences politics, how much democracy, you know, in our society is corrupted by the Citizens United ruling, the scads of 
money everywhere, you know, the, the ideology that takes a lot of uh, money to keep promulgating and so forth. So it just kind of boggles the mind to think that you could just say, oh, wait, we, we, we will have democracy. And that is a given. And then on the basis of that, we can ha have a completely different society that's just going to flow naturally. Well, yeah, it flows naturally, given what you can't take for granted, actually, which is that if you don't completely transform the material mode of production, you can have a, a socialist democracy. Yeah, and to lay all the problems of the Soviet Union, for example, uh, on just the lack of democracy would seem to be a really irresponsible um, sort of history. Everything from massive famines to, uh, you know, deep poverty to like brutal race to industrialized to, you know, massive repression and mass murder, all that it would seem to be way too sim simplified and, and irresponsible to say it was all about just a lack of democracy. And even the factor, even the factor that, that the, the apologists would always point to is it was an isolated country in a sea of capitalism. Mm -hmm. uh, that was a very important objective factor. Yeah, totally. You know, in addition to the importance of this debate about the uh, mode of production in the Soviet Union, um, there's also this, in, in Duniskaya's response to this debate or her contribution to this debate, um, there's this discussion about the vulgarization of Marxism. Um, and, you know, why does she bring that up in the paper? And why is that important? Vulgarization refers to his conceptions of capitalism that were vulgar or common, every, everyday conceptions. So this idea of taking the everyday conceptions, which are based on the immediate appearances, what's on the surface of society, I mean, this has come back with a vengeance. I think that this is what we're dealing with, for instance, when we, we deal with the so-called value form paradigm or value form theory, which, you know, when you, they talk about capitalism, it's about markets. It's about buying and selling and getting money and private property and all of these things that are just visible on the surface of society. Uh, and there, there's a preference for that. And there's a kind of a reluctance to go into questions of depth. I think we saw that when we saw that, you know, we were discussing Chris Arthur, a major value form theorist, saying, you know, money is the essence of, of capitalism. And Marx says that, that money prices reflect value, and value is not on the surface of society. And so you, you get in this debate with Carter a lot of discussion of, and, and really a lot of what is underlying, actually what's underlying the difference between the bureaucratic collectivist position and the, the theory that Russia was a state capitalist society, a lot of that goes to, are you looking at surface phenomena? You know, as you were talking about the, the features of the characteristics, the criteria that one typically observes in Western capitalism, does like every feature count equally? Or do we need to talk about a structure in some depth so that we could have, for instance, the same essence of things appear in different forms? This way in Western capitalism, another way in the USSR, uh, and so forth. So essentially the same kind of society that takes on different forms depending on this and that. You know, I've always thought that the main objection to the, the the idea that Russia was state capitalist is that it just seems to a lot of people to be oxymoronic to put 
the word state and capitalism together. And I've always thought that that was really at the, the, the root of why Carter and Shackman and so forth denied that the USSR was state capitalist, because just it, it didn't compute in, in their conceptualization of what capitalism is, which was driven very, very much by similar kinds of preoccupations that drive value form theory. Value form theory stresses money and exchange. And Carter, not so much, but he stressed private property and the motives of individual capitalists. So it's not that different. Yeah, and value form theory, because it sees the market and the coordination of labor through market exchange as the what is specifically capitalist about capitalist social relations, it doesn't seem to be able to see the relationships in the workplace, the relationship between uh, the worker and the machine as something that's particularly capitalist. I think back to Isaac Rubens, or one of the forerunners of value form theory, and he, in the early in his book, he draws this uh, clear duality between technical relations of production and social relations of production. And you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that distinction, but social relations just mean market exchange for him. So the whole subject-object inversion that Marx talks about, the domination of dead labor over living, living labor, that there's no place for that and, and that sort of duality. Right. He, or, or putting it another way, he's separating the two such that the technical relations of production are not themselves social relations, but they're neutral. You, you, you got you got factories and alienated labor in all kinds of societies, uh, you know, including socialism. And what's different is uh, who controls or something like that. Yeah, uh, or or the, the the mechanisms by which allocation of resources and distributions of products take place. Something like that. Yeah. I mean, I I don't know that they they would want to go so far, but you know, value form theorists. But that's certainly the dominant impression that one gets. Is is that the character of the exchange process colors everything else and, and changes one thing in, into another on its basis. I mean, that's what's so interesting, I think, about this question of characterizing the Soviet Union as state capitalists is that immediately you have to really dig a lot deeper into Marx's categories and, and try to understand them, forces you to move beyond surface appearances and think a lot harder and read a lot more closely to try to tease out exactly what is the differentia specifica of a capitalist society and it makes the, the political project of being anti-capitalist a lot more challenging to think about. I mean, this is the beginning of doing this guy's deep dive into uh, Marxist humanism or to her development of Marxist humanism sort of is happens in this context where she's you know, thinking about this concept of state capitalism and having to get at what Marx really means by capitalism and think of what an alternative to capitalism would entail that's not Stalinism. Yeah, maybe we need to define uh, differentia specifica. It specific, means specific difference, right? It, it, it comes from biology when like you're classifying species and like what makes one species different from another species. And it also goes to the whole issue of definition. I mean, a lot of people said to really define something properly, you have to be able to pinpoint the specific difference, right? So you wouldn't want to say, well, you know, human beings are a two-legged animal, right? Because there are human beings that only have one leg, but they're still human beings. So you have to get at what, what it 
specifically makes them human. Sometimes, you know, like when we're talking about political formations, I think I'm thinking of like the debate over what the definition of fascism is. I think we talked about this a long time ago. And really often those sort of debates, you have like a list of characteristics. Like these are the list of characteristics that all these fascist societies had. But those are like a question of political formation where that sort of listing characteristics is a little more excusable or, or maybe unavoidable. But in terms of a mode of production, which you know clearly has like essential characteristics and then phenomena or surface phenomena that, or modes of appearance of those essential characteristics, it seems important to really, you, you, you can really drill down to the essence and, and, and define that in a way that it's not just like comparing a list of features and seeing which things are, line up. Right. And I mean, this is what Carter was doing. It's kind of the, the essence of the bureaucratic collectivist conception. In one of these contributions to the debate, this is exactly what C.R. James charges Carter with just going down a list and checking off items on the list. That was the methodology. And he was saying this is just completely unacceptable. So in 1941, Carter wrote a contribution to this discussion, and he says this, quote, Stalinist Russia is thus a reactionary state based upon a new system of economic exploitation, bureaucratic collectivism. The ruling class is the bureaucracy, which through its control of the state collectively owns, controls, and administers the means of production and exchange. The basic motive force of the economy is the extraction of more and more surplus labor from the toilers so as to increase the revenue revenue, power, and position of the bureaucracy. The economy is organized and directed through state totalitarian planning and political terrorism. The toilers are compelled by the state, as well as economic necessity, to labor in the factories and fields. Forced labor is thus an inherent feature of present-day Russian productive relations. So he's saying that this bureaucratic collectivist society has uh, surplus labor, but he doesn't call it surplus value. He says that the workers are compelled by the state and economic necessity to work in the factories and calls it a type of forced labor. And he says that they're producing surplus labor to increase the revenue power and position of the bureaucracy. But this was not an acceptable characterization of the mode of production and the Soviet Union for the Johnson Forest tendency. So, you know, what were their issues with this perspective? I mean, Johnson and Forrest basically accepted that there was extraction of surplus labor, more and more surplus labor, basically that the bureaucracy, especially the upper reaches of the bureaucracy, constituted a, the, the ruling class. But the idea that this was taking place so as to increase the revenue power and position of the bureaucracy was just not something they could accept. It. I mean, basically, why was the bureaucracy putting hundreds of millions of people through this? Well, just for their own benefit. That was uh, the position that, that they didn't accept. And the idea that this was a new system of exploitation, not capitalist exploitation, even though there's extraction of more and more surplus labor, that's a really bizarre thing for a Marxist to say, because this more and more unending quest for surplus labor is something that Marx connects inextricably to capitalism, differentiating it from all other societies. And he does that very explicitly in capital, you know, the, the book. And he talks about like slavery in the in the United States. And he says, before you get contact with the world market for cotton and everything, U.S. slavery is pretty much like some 
other kind of mode of production, not capitalism, but when you get this huge unending market for cotton, then the production relations in the, the, the plantation south become totally changed. You get the quest for more and more labor extraction, working the, the slaves to death three generations in the space of a generation. And why? Because unlike every other class society where you've got class antagonisms, a ruling class and, and, and a subordinate class, an exploitative class versus exploited classes, capitalism alone is unique in having this purpose that goes on without limit. Capital is self-expanding value, and it expands, 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 potentially without end. It, there's no limited finite goal. In other societies, you have, okay, the bureaucracy, or you have the feudal lords, or you have whoever. And why are they exploiting? So that they can live well, so that they their, their own personal consumption needs can be met, okay? But that's not what capitalism is about, because what do the capitalists do with their profits? They get a lot of profits over and above what they can consume, and they plow that back into production, and they plow that back into their businesses, and they expand, expand, expand in order to extract even more value, in order to accumulate even more value and plow it back without end, potentially. And that's exactly what was going on in the USSR. The bureaucracy was not doing what it was doing so that the bureaucrats could live well. What did Stalin say? He says, we have to catch up with and outdistance the capitalist lands. That was the the explicit recognized project. How do you do all of this? You, you industrialize and you industrialize rapidly. And so what you're doing is you're taking the fruits of the surplus labor and you're plowing them back into production, not to expand the enjoyments of the bureaucracy beyond limit, no, not to expand the, the standard of living of the masses far from that. You're expanding in order to expand further, in order to catch up and in order to outdistance. How is that not self-expanding value, MCM prime, that Marx talked about in Capital? So this paper by Dunyevskaya and the previous parts of the debate that she's responding to, um, they don't directly take up this question explicitly of whether or not the Soviet Union is a state capitalist society. Instead, they seem to be much more concerned with some more minutia of the argument, like whether or not production for production's sake is a distinctly capitalist phenomenon, to what extent the subjective profit motive of private capitalists is a essential characteristic of capitalist production. Why don't we get more discussion of the larger picture in this debate about bureaucratic collectivism or state capitalism? In other words, it, it, the debate is not, we say that it's state capitalism and here's why. And we say, no, it's bureaucratic collectivism and here's why. The debate focused on basically the, the fact that in the USSR, the production of means of production, machinery and so forth, was growing faster than the production of consumption goods. This is something that was discussed by Marx in Volume 2 of Capital, his scheme of expanded reproduction you know, or accumulation. And he was there saying that this is capitalist accumulation. This is the way capitalism expands. Okay, At first, if you're starting with a given material basis without technological change and without foreign trade, the only way to have growth, expanded reproduction is against simple reproduction, the only way that that can occur is to have more production for production, more production of means of production 
and less production for the consumer goods industries. So more machines go into producing additional machines, fewer machines go into producing uh, consumer goods, right? So that's what Marx worked out as here's how it, it, it takes place in, in capitalism. And Dunyevskaya and James were saying, ah, okay, this is a demonstration then the, the facts of Russia, the facts of Russian industrial development together with the understanding that we get from volume two, this demonstrates that Russia has been going down this capitalist road. This is capitalist development. And, you know, Carter denies that. So that's what, what the issue was about that they're discussing, apart from the vulgarization, not specifically directly whether Russia was state capitalist, but does the unbalanced industrialization, that kind of growth, that kind of development, does that disproportion or imbalance demonstrate that Russia was uh, a capitalist society? So both so mostly they're discussing in in these papers in these this debate this issue of production for production's sake whether that is something that's specifically capitalist you know and so the debate is focusing on that is that because that is like the central issue in this debate and that if you can determine that production for production's sake is specifically capitalist then that determines who who, who wins the debate you know, I think so. But the question is, why is that? I mean, I think to some extent, the Johnson Forest tendency was constrained by party discipline. They weren't just free to publish at will in the pages of the party's theoretical journal contributions arguing that Russia was state capitalist. So they, they had to do other things like argue on the ground of Marxian theory and so forth about what does production for production say imply and so forth. To some extent, they had to do that. But I, I also think that this is something more general to serious intellectual debates generally that people who are outside of the debate are often surprised by and don't get, which is that when you look at any real intellectual debate, it is never on the big questions. It is never directly about the big question. The reason is very, very simple. The one side and the other side don't agree about that, okay? So you can't discuss that, right? You got a disagreement. So the debate, well, Hegel would put it, it falls to the ground. So basically, you've got a disagreement, and what you have to then get at is, the grounds of the disagreement, right? So that's why he says it falls to the ground. Get to the grounds of the disagreement, and maybe you can debate the grounds, bases, the, the preconceptions that underlie how you get to the different conclusions. So yeah, that's what they were doing. And it's, it just seems surprising to people because people come to a debate that's about big issues, and then they don't see the big issues being discussed. But that, that just is, is very common. Right, right. And this is... Um... This is before Dunyevskaya produced her like um, her like statistical study of uh, the Soviet Union, right? No. Well, the, the the exact chronology is this: in the New International, which was the Workers' Party theoretical journal, she published the analysis of uh, the Russian economy uh, in two parts in December 1942 and January 1943, okay? So, so right in the middle of this. It's right in the middle of okay. this. Johnson had come out and Carter had replied in April of 42, but then Johnson doesn't reply to Carter till April of 43. So Dunyaskaya's analysis gets 
gets published smack in the middle between the initial salvo and uh, Johnson's response to, to Carter. And, and, and in the pages of the New International, she's allowed to give the analysis statistically of the direction of Russian development, but she's not allowed to, you know, in that uh, outward-facing party publication, say what the import of the statistics is, which is that this is the direction of Russian development was capitalist development. You know, part of Dunyanskaya's critique of Carter is to accuse him of vulgarizing various aspects of Marx. Why is this an important aspect? I mean, maybe we've we talked about this earlier on, right? This uh, trading surface appearance as the um, as like an essential characteristic of capitalist society. Right, but I, I, to, to tie it to, together with what we've said before more generally, I mean, basically, I, I think that the opposition, when you get down to it, the ground of the opposition to saying that Russia was state capitalist or even to using the conjunction of terms state and capitalist together is it, that it just goes against a mentality that hovers around the surface of phenomena. It's like state capitalism? Oh, hell, that ain't any kind of capitalism that I know. It's like capitalism is private and it's about private ownership and all of this. It's like, if you dwell on the appearances, then that's what capitalism is going to be is a set of appearances, this laundry list of appearances, right? So what what, what do you do with somebody like Carter who who insists on that? I mean, basically he says, you have to have private capitalists who are in control of things and doing things for their individual benefit, personal profit, right? And if you don't have that, then it's not capitalist. That's a certain appearance on the surface of society, that the extraction of surplus value is undertaken by capitalists who are called capitalists, who own and control the means of production, who and allegedly do this for their own benefit, their own individual profit. Now, that, that's actually helpful for me in, in contextualizing some of the quotes from Carter that are in this paper. That helps me understand them a little better, actually. Um, yeah, that's the whole thing, and that's in the. It's also in the quote from uh, Carter that that you've read out. The basic motive force of the economy is the extraction of more and more surplus labor. Doesn't end there from the toilers, so as to increase the revenue power and position of the bureaucracy. It's not that this is so as to increase the piling up of money in the bank accounts of the private owners. And hell, that's got to make it a new society, right? It's got to be not capitalist. In just a moment, we will return to this conversation, but first, a few words from Anja Clard, Organizational Secretary of Marxist Humanist Initiative. Marxist Humanist Initiative, or MHI, aims to contribute to the transformation of this capitalist world by projecting, developing, and concretizing the philosophy of Karl Marx and its further development in the Marxist humanism articulated by Raya Donayevskaya. The ongoing COVID-19 pandemic and today's many other social, political, and economic crises make this a moment to engage people in discussion of these ideas. In the U.S., we are faced with the threat of Trumpism triumphing an all-out authoritarianism extinguishing our right to carry on these discussions. Yet at the same moment, the multiracial movement for black lives has spread to every corner of the country and the world, launching a flood of activism and new ideas 
that deepen the concept of freedom. MHI is dedicated to the task of proving theoretically that an alternative to capitalism is possible. We are distinguished by our economic analyses in which we do not merely assert but demonstrate that the only opposite to the current world economic system is its abolition and replacement with one not based on the production of, quote, value, close quote. Because capitalism cannot be fundamentally reformed, attempts to reform it lead to an intensification of state capitalism, not to socialism. We are not a political party, nor are we trying to lead the masses who will form their own organization and whose emancipation must be their own act. But we have seen that spontaneous actions alone are insufficient to usher in a new society. We seek a new unity of philosophy and organization in which mass movements striving for freedom lay hold of Marx's philosophy of revolution and recreate society on its basis. Our ideas and actions, as well as our structure and rules, are guided by the interests of working people and freedom movements of people of color, LGBTQ people, other minorities, women, youth, and all those around the world who are struggling for self-determination in order to freely develop their own human natures. We have no interests separate and apart from theirs. To this end, we open our website to the widest possible dialogue with people around the world. We intend to practice as well as espouse a two-way road between our organization and people outside it as essential to developing a single dialectic in the relationship of theory to practice and as the way to assure the survival of Marxist humanism. Please join us. So Cardi argued that the profit motive is the driving force of capitalist production. And he said that since the profit motive was absent in Russia, it was obviously not capitalist. Clearly, Dunyaskaya would want to challenge this argument, but why did she do so by attacking the idea that profit, that the profit motive is the driving force of capitalist production and accumulation? Like, what's wrong with that, and how is that a vulgarization of Marxism? This is this is actually hard to understand because you, you read this and it seems okay. It seems like what Marx said, and it seems like the, the basic facts of life that we know. But the the problem here is you got another society without private ownership and without money piling up in, in the bank accounts of the private owners, right? Okay, so what do you do with that? So it, when when you insist on that way in which capitalism functions in a private ownership society and and you transplant that to another society, say, oh well, that's not capitalist. That's that's a, di- a different matter. So the whole the whole issue here is, is that just a form of appearance of something else, or is is that basic and fundamental in itself that you've got private owners who subjectively think that they're doing what they're doing for their own individual benefit? In Marx's conception, the capitalists are severely constrained. They're dominated by laws. Competition makes the the laws of capitalist production uh, compulsory. They have to obey those laws. And it's not a matter of what they want and what they freely choose. If they don't act a certain way, the laws of capitalist production will ensure that they're not capitalists very much longer because they're going to go out of business. If, for instance, you don't drive the workers harder and harder and extract more and more and more surplus labor, if you don't produce as cheaply as possible, then either you're 
you're you're you're cutting into your own profit severely because you're not producing efficiently as possible, in which case you can't expand and accumulate and get a bigger market share. Or you're going to be saying, okay, well, I got to keep my profits up, but my costs are so much higher because I'm not uh, exploiting the, the the workers more and more and extracting more without paying them more. Okay, so my costs are higher, and so I got to raise my prices. Well, you you raise your prices, you're in the same situation. You're going to be out competed by your competitors. So the, the, the capitalists are dominated by the way in which capitalism functions. They're fundamentally dominated by what, what Dunyevskaya, among others, calls the law of value. And so to act like everything is a matter of, as she puts it, what men have in their heads, as if what the men have in their heads and they own the property, therefore they're in control, that, that's not really what's going on. Yeah, they have certain things in their heads. The Russian bureaucrats have other things in their heads. But the real question is, are they dominated both by economic laws over which they have no control? And secondly, more importantly, are those economic laws one and the same laws in, you know, let's say the U.S. and, and the USSR? And, and Carter tries to have it both ways. On the one hand, he accepts the capitalists are controlled by forces and laws beyond their control. But he says they produce in order to make profits. That's the mode of force. And that they are in control, that their quest to make profits is what drives the whole society. So he's, he tries to have it both ways. That's what's a little bit tricky at first when you read some of the quotes, because he says they're, they're responding to objective economic forces. But what's missing seems to be the idea that if you take the capitalist out of the picture, what happens to those economic forces? No, I think this question of vulgarization and the sort of appearance in essence, this is, helps clarify, I think, a lot of this debate. Are there other good examples of vulgarization that you think would be useful to, to bring up? Well, there's this one issue that you raised earlier, that the technical relations of production are themselves social relations. And Dunyaskaya slams him on that. The surface appearance is that a machine is just like a, a means of production, like a tool. There's nothing capitalist about that. So the fact that you got machinery in Russia and that the machinery and machine producing industries are privileged, that, that seems to have nothing to do with the social character of the, the society for somebody like Carter. And and so he gets all indignant about uh, C.L.R. James referring to machines as capital. He's saying, you're talking about capital like it's a thing. You know, that. Uh, so this guy slams him on that. So he's accusing C.L.R. James of some kind of fetishism. Yeah. I, I mean, for instance, Carter writes, quote, the use value of constant capital is that it functions as a means of producing ultimately consumer goods. And Dunyevsky responds that when Carter says that, he strips constant capital of its capitalist character and converts it to a simple factor of social production. She says the intention of the capitalist is to produce a machine to make shoes, or the intention of the, the designers, right? The intention is to produce a machine to make shoes. But since value dominates capitalist society, the machine is permitted to produce shoes only insofar as those shoes embody the socially necessary labor time. The minute new invention cuts that necessary labor time, the shoe machine uh, is given no chance to display its use value.
value. So she's getting at something very early that people didn't get at, at that moment in history much, that even in the very uh, formulation and the design and, and construction of the shoe machine, it, it's already got capitalism embodied in it through and through. It's not just some neutral tool. It's not like a stick that you pick up on the ground and start digging, right? It, 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 it's designed to function as capital. Do you want to get into this issue of um, proving a term? Here, here, here's the problem. The formula in the, the chapter on expanded reproduction that James singles out, Mark says what distinguishes expanded reproduction growth accumulation from simple reproduction or no growth society is that the Department of Production that produces means of production not only produces enough for itself to replace what it's used up and what the consumer goods people have used up. So they're not only producing machines for replacement, but they're producing additional machines above and beyond that. That's the, the characteristic difference between no growth and a society that's, that's going to grow is that you get additional production of means of production. Okay, So that, that department one, the production for the sake of production of uh, machines and so forth, that grows faster. And Carter says, okay, but that's not specifically capitalist. Carter maintains that any society that's going to grow, socialist society, whatever kind of society, any society that's going to grow will have to conform to that. So if you want to say that there's something specific about this that's capitalist, it can't be in the material side of this, that there's more machines than is needed for replacement that are being produced. It would have to be in something about the terms constant capital, variable capital, surplus value that's capitalist. So he's challenging James, you know, and then implicitly Dunyaskaya to say that when Marx is talking about expanded reproduction and James and Dunyevskaya are singling out the expansion of production, of means of production, they need to show that there's something specifically capitalist about this, that there's something to constant capital rather than saying machinery, that there's something to variable capital rather than just saying wage goods or something like that. That's, that's what he's getting at is to prove that there is something specifically capitalist about this expanded reproduction. So he says, you've got to prove that the terms are specifically capitalist. Obviously, he's aware that Marx used constant and variable capital to refer to capitalism because the word capital is in, is in the terms. But what he, he's saying is, you have to tell me what it is about this expansion that's specifically capitalist. So CLR James responded uh, saying, how can I or anybody prove what Carter asks? Terms exist for one purpose, proof. Proof does not exist for terms. In, in his reply to Carter, which was published in Workers' Party Bulletin in April 1943, uh, entitled Production for the Sake of Production, a reply to Carter, James says basically that the, the kind of demand that Carter is making, that he prove his terms, prove that they're capitalist, is scholasticism. And he says, as you said, terms exist for one purpose, proof, proof does not exist for terms. And he says, like, that's Hegelianism, and that's the way things are in, in modern life and the way we, we go about proving things now. The kind of proof that, that Carter is talking about, you know, in other words, a strictly deductive proof, 
It's possible only in mathematics and very formal logic. It can never be applied in life and society. The way things are proved or, so to speak, demonstrated once you get outside of mathematics and very formal logic, he's saying, is you, you take a conception and you see what its implications are, and then you see if, in, in fact, we get those implications in, in reality. In other words, you, for instance, you make a prediction on the basis of a certain conceptualization using those terms, uh, and you know if your predictions prove to be borne out, then the, the, the conception is right. So he says the proof of the pudding is in the eating. You, you, you can't go ahead and prove that it's pudding. How do you prove it's pudding? You eat it. And if it's pudding, if, if, if it's edible and you don't like start gagging and choking, that's the proof that you've produced pudding. Carter's like there. It's like he's looking at a bowl of stuff. He says, prove to me that this is a pudding. Well, how, how do you do that? You know, you, you can't do that by examining terms. You've got certain terms which are used to develop a, 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 an understanding of what's going on. That's the, the, the terms existing for one purpose, proof. Carter's inverting that, okay? I mean, you can do that, that purely deductive thing of deducing terms from terms in mathematics, presumably, and, and some, some formal logic. You, you, can't, you can't do that with, with regard to empirical matters. This is what, what Johnson is getting at. And he's saying the modern world has completely left this way of doing things be, behind. We, we, we no longer just ruminate on terms in order to prove things. When we're talking about something empirical, we go out and we look at whether the phenomena that we would predict or something similar, we look at whether that's borne out. If it is, then that that, that substantiates our, our conceptions. Uh, and and it, he, he says something really interesting uh, at this point where he says people are always doing that with value theory. He says... Right. They want to the prove, prove the labor theory value, he says. Yeah. He says... The metaphysical superstition, which to this day demands of Marxists, for instance, that they first or, in fact, prove the labor theory of value. Well, what, what's the proof of the theory? I, you know, I've, I've, never, I've never understood what people are asking for when, when, when they talk about that. Like, do you have an idea of what, what they want when they, when they challenge you to prove this? Uh, yeah, well, I, <laughs> you can talk about whether a theory is internally consistent, whether it makes sense, and then you can talk about whether the theory adequately describes the phenomena it's trying to describe. But beyond that, I don't know what proof. And and, you're right. and, and you could say the, the implications of this theory are that we will see X, Y, Z. That's a kind of a prediction. Mm -hmm. And guess what? We see X, Y, and Z. Yeah. So the, the theory does what it's supposed to do. Yeah. Right? Um, it, it, you know, until something better comes along, if ever, it's an adequate conceptualization. Well, that's all the time we have for this episode of Radio Free Humanity. If you enjoy the podcast, we would love to hear from you. Please drop us a line, a comment, rate the podcast, leave us a donation, subscribe to the podcast, share it with your friends and enemies. If you want to know more about issues discussed in this episode, you can always go to marxisthumanist.org where you can find lots of writings on this topic and many others.